0: Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Amy. We both grew up with dads who drank too much. So we are both adult children of alcoholics. And we're here to talk about our experiences using honesty and some pretty dark humour. We'll be chatting to
1: a variety of people affected by alcohol addiction. Our dads were both called Steve and they're both dead now, which means we can finally have the conversations we've wanted to. You had to go there already, didn't you? We've had a lot of experiences between us and we are both really passionate about helping other people. So let's sit back, relax and join us with Sarah
0: and Amy, Children of Alcoholics podcast. Welcome. This is, um, I'm not quite sure what episode this is, but we are joined today by my sister Vicky. So it's a special one today. We are going to be talking about being children of alcoholics and having conversations or a conversation that we've
1: not had before, have we?
2: Nope.
1: So welcome, Vicky. Thank you. Um, I'm essentially here in, I'm not really sure in what capacity, potentially to break up any, uh, any arguments because that's what siblings do. But I'm genuinely interested. I have a brother and obviously we both grew up with, my dad being an alcoholic and we've always been really close. And certainly during sort of a very, you know, his very active addiction phases, we were very together in terms of what, have you spoken to dad? This is what we need to do, et cetera, et cetera. I tended to lead it and boss him around and, I can see that Vicky's already smirking and Sarah's (laughs) looking slightly sheepish at that description. But, and you know, certainly in the days and weeks and months after my dad died, we were very together and always on the same page, but we haven't ever sort of sat down and had a conversation. So I'm really fascinated to see how this plays out because I think one thing we've all learned is that you can all grow up with the same set of parents and the same set of circumstances, but your feelings around that, your feelings towards that parent, your responses to it and how you cope with it yeah. can be very different. Um, and Sarah and I have both done our NACOA training. And one of the big things we learned was actually about how, if you grow up with a parent who has an alcohol dependency, it can really affect your personality into one of four ways. Um, and broadly speaking, they call them the clown, the hero child, the forgotten child and the scapegoat. So I would kind of identify myself as being a clown, which I don't know. Everyone, I think, will probably agree with that. And that's somebody who tries to kind of joke around, mess around, keep it all quite light, keep it fun, make sure that everything, everyone's having a good time to almost kind of take the focus off other things that are happening and then the hero child would be one who does really well at school um I didn't necessarily do that but I definitely fall into this camp but tries to organize everything control everything and make sure everything runs as smoothly as possible to really just keep everything as level as it can be and then the forgotten child would be someone who just bobs along under the surface and doesn't really, I'm going to say get terribly involved and that's not necessarily true, but doesn't really do anything to draw attention to themselves and just keeps their head down and just kind of gets on with it. And then um, somebody who was identified as the scapegoat child is often the one who the person in the addiction or other family members almost sort of pin all the blame on and um, they're blamed for the reason that this has happened and generally just probably made to feel pretty bad about themselves for whatever reason. So, as I say, we're just so fascinated to kind of just sit back and listen to you two have a chat, really. So I'm going to pass you back over. Thank you.
0: Well, I think I identify as the hero child. Sensible Sarah. You might think differently. Um, Dad would think differently. <laughs> Dad probably would think differently, wouldn't he? Um, so... Listen, this is the first time we're talking about this. Um, and I know it's going to be an awkward start, isn't it? Or do um, you, do you, How do you feel about it? How do you feel about this?
2: It's, it's not real right now um, because I don't really speak about it. I don't really talk about it to myself or think about it to myself. So thinking about it and talking about it at the same time into a microphone and with other people is really quite surreal um Do but I know ready for it though I feel ready I feel quite empowered at the moment um I don't believe I will regret it because I think it's natural and normal to talk about what I've gone through um as you say that everybody has this the same upbringing um when you're a child of an alcoholic but you live and feel differently to to how your other siblings may be feeling so I think we've definitely lived very same lives but had very different feelings towards um, this. So I'm, I do feel ready. I feel quite confident and empowered now to talk about
1: what I've gone through. So run me through kind of your family dynamic. There are three of you, is that right? Yeah, there's... How did that play out? Um, so
2: Sarah was always the... Oh, look, go on, Come on, I'm here for this. <laughs> On, Sarah's me. very... Sarah was very what? <laughs> she, she liked to take control, which I didn't mind, because that was that was that. reassuring. Um, I think, especially around Dad's funeral, when he died, I couldn't face anything to do with a funeral. In fact, I didn't even think about anything. I just turned up. Um, and Sarah took control over that and that sort of stuff to take the pressure off myself. Um, so... That is definitely something I've um, benefited from. I, I feel also Sarah has been like another parent figure in the family. Um, so she's always been there to help me with everything and support me with every life decision I've ever made. Oh, stop I that. always... <laughs> <Make> <laughs> cry. And I, I will always um, look up to Sarah. So whenever Sarah says something um her opinion always matters to me, just like it does with anybody else's, but there's always something different about Sarah's opinion. Um so and um, obviously my younger sister Anna, we love her, don't we? She's she's amazing. Oh, um yeah. yeah, she's she's just amazing and she's been through so much in her life as well. But um she's um she's the youngest she's the youngest and she's come through really strong and she's such a strong character now Anna is. Nothing phases Hannah, does it? Um, How do you think you identify? Um, I also think I identify the same as you, hero I, child. Yeah, yeah, I think I do. You looked after Dad a lot. I did. I took on a lot of um, a lot of his sort of life. Really, I, I controlled that. I I did a lot of his work stuff. I did clothes washing, um, food shopping for him. I took him to work when he was um, unfortunately drunk. I drove him to work. Um, not something that I'm sure he was proud of, but he couldn't help it. Um, I used to wait outside his work and pick him up at eight o'clock every night. And um, I did did a lot for him. I was there as well emotionally for him. He would always call me. And I think he
0: felt closest he to felt you close out of to all of us.
2: Yeah, and I think that's because I lived locally to him and he... He um he used he to just turn up yeah. yeah he used to just turn up at my address without even calling and I used to get really frustrated at times because I'd be in the shower or I'd be sleeping and he'd just turn up and knock on the door sometimes he'd just walk in <laughs> and, and it's sad because I used to really really um get frustrated at times but now I'd give anything for that to come for him just to walk in and um ask me a question that he could have called me about he just drove round to my house um. So, yeah, I I do think I took control. I took control over a lot of his lifestyle as well and what his decisions he made. Um, and even his finances. I had access to his online banking. I had um, access to what he was... Um, car find, car um, insurance, sorry, and that sort of stuff. I dealt with all that for him. So I did take control a lot of the time and I feel like now it's... Um, it's apparent, I think, in my lifestyle, I'm a quite a controlling person, but I am try- trying to change that. Oh, that's
1: okay, buddy. Welcome to the club. <laughs> We've all got control issues in this room. So it kind of sounds like maybe you had different jobs or different responsibilities that you probably didn't sit down mm-hmm. and actually allocate to each other. But just naturally, you fell into this pattern where almost it sounds like Sarah was kind of responsible for your well-being, and I yeah. know she did a lot with your dad as well. But then you took on, and your your other sister probably took on bits as well. Would you say that's yeah, the case?
2: Yeah, I think Hannah and I, we took on a lot of stuff physically. So we were local to him. Um, and Sarah was there very, she was there for him emotionally, wasn't you? I think and
0: my my role with dad was the one to um, honest, upfront, blunt, straight to the point mm. talking dad yeah. I was the one that well I stopped all three of us from talking to him for three months yeah. until he admitted that he had a problem <clears throat> yeah um and then I was the one that took him to the detox facility so I, my role was different with dad mine was the kind of um like almost that authority figure over dad yeah. as what in, he needed yeah as yeah. in if you don't do this we're not going to talk to you again yeah but what actually I feel like that did as much as it Brought him sobriety for 16 months. Mm. I feel that we forced or I forced that on him and he needed to want to do it himself. So that time he got sober for 16 months after we forced him into a detox clinic or I forced him into a detox clinic was done for us and not for him, which at the time... We didn't realise. We didn't really understand. We didn't understand. I feel like we kept a big secret. We didn't want to t- tell anybody about it. We wanted to protect him. We wanted to keep him safe. We didn't want to tell anybody just how bad it was. We kind of brushed a lot of it under the carpet and tried to deal with it in-house, really. That's what I, I kind of feel like we did. Um, talk me through, like, do you know, the end, when, when um, he started drinking again. And you found him, didn't you? I did. What was that like? We've never really spoken about that. I've never wanted to speak about that. I've never asked you. No. Do you want to talk about it now or do you don't have to?
2: I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday because it was so significant. And I remember every detail about the trauma, I'd say, because that was a very traumatic day and the lead up to it as well was very traumatic. So I do remember it very clearly. It's not something that I'm able to unfortunately forget. Um, but I think the build-up to that day, we both know he was drinking. I had multiple arguments with him, unfortunately. I said some horrible stuff um, out of anger to him. And I, don't, I didn't mean it, obviously, but my emotions at the time, I couldn't regulate them. So I was trying my hardest to to support him whilst I had, I had a one-year-old at the time. Um, I was also trying to look after her as well. You know it doesn't matter, though. The
0: stuff that you, I know, this, we've spoken about that before, and I know what you've said. I said some horrendous things to him, horrendous stuff, and it's we were we were suffering as well. Yeah, and it didn't come out of a place of hatred; no. it came out of a place of love because we were so frustrated. Yeah, I always liken that that end of his life. I remember the frustration. I called him a see you next Tuesday. I told him I hated him. Um, and you'd be better off dead. Mm, I said the same. And um, I hated myself for saying it, and then he rung me back and said, did you really mean that? And I said, no, I didn't, Dad. I'm just so frustrated that you've done this again. Mm. And that frustration I liken to watching somebody you love drown and you're not able to get in and pull them out.
2: Yeah, I felt I couldn't control him anymore. I felt he was too far gone. Um, I, I knew he was drinking excessively, and I knew that if he has any more alcohol, it would kill him. So I knew what was coming and I just had a, a sense of doom. I had this feeling on this Wednesday night and I I got him a doctor's appointment and he refused to go and I spoke to the doctor over the phone and she said to me, you do realise if you don't get him to the hospital, it could get worse? And I said, I've tried. I I can't force him. I've tried to get him there. Um, so she, he'd agreed to go the next morning um, and she had made an appointment for him to come in And I got up, um, I went to pick him up, but I did have my daughter with me at the time. Um, The plan was to pick him up and take him to the surgery and he would see the doctor. I was a little bit naive to what would be happening. I just assumed that he would go to the doctors, the doctor would check him over and give him some tablets and hopefully put him back into rehab. Um, But when I turned up, I was knocking on the door. I had no answer. I... um, I went around the back and there was no answer. Um, but I looked through the front window and I could see him laying on the floor. And I thought he was just drunk and he was just passed out or he was sleeping on the floor for some reason. And um, I was looking on the window trying to get his attention. I could see he was sort of moving and um, trying to talk back to me, but he wasn't. I knew that he wasn't right, and I knew then at that point he wasn't drunk. He was ill from. From it, he was struggling with the um, organ failure. So I, whilst holding my daughter, I managed to open the window um, and climbed in through the window. And um, he was—he was—I'd um, say it's was quite volatile actually towards me. He wasn't very nice. So then I thought, is he drunk? But then he started saying stuff like, "Okay, I'll go to the hospital, but you have to get me the TV remote, or you have to pass me the food." and he was saying stuff like that and i just thought you're delusional there's something not right and it it wasn't that he was drunk he was he was struggling with something um something that alcohol hadn't caused well it had caused but it, he hadn't drank for however long so he wasn't drunk um so i called him an ambulance or i tried to call him an ambulance sorry and he he basically um shouted at me and said, "Don't you dare call me an ambulance?" And there was a few chosen words in there as well that he said, which I won't repeat on here. <laughs> um, but he he um he agreed to go to hospital. I pulled him up and dragged him outside, literally dragged him, and I don't know where I got the I don't know where I got the energy from to do that, to be honest, because he was like a dead weight, he was very heavy. And I just put him in the car and the car journey up to the hospital was only five minutes, but it was so silent. He didn't say anything. He just had his head down. As though he was, he knew he had that sense of death. He knew something wasn't right. And then I got into the hospital, parked up outside the A&E and I asked for some help. And at that point, I felt embarrassed because I said to these paramedics, can you help me? Um, take my father into the hospital and they asked what was wrong with him and I said he's drunk because that's all I knew and they went oh okay and then the look on their face was almost like it was a burden on them and I felt really and I shouldn't I shouldn't have felt ashamed I shouldn't have felt embarrassed and I know that now but at the time I felt like I'm burdening them and I'm sure he felt the same but he wasn't in any sort of mental capacity to even think about where he was Um. And um, yeah, I got him in, and I just sat there and cried. And at that point, I realised it wasn't it wasn't a good it good was, outcome.
0: There was always this impending sense of doom, which I kind of brushed under the carpet, which felt weird. Yeah. I had um, I begged him to go to hospital a few days before that, um, and I also tried to call him an ambulance, and he shouted and swore at me. Yeah. So I walked away, and I, I, it took me a lot of therapy to deal with that guilt because I felt like I'd killed him by not ringing an ambulance sooner. Um, even though I know it's not my fault and we were in that situation, we've been in that situation so many times where you just think, oh, we'll get him the medication, he'll yeah. get a detox and we'll go back to um, square one again. Um, I remember that phone call that morning. I was on my way to work when you rang me. Rung me yeah. And I kn- and it's weird because 10, um, not 10 minutes, but five minutes before you called, I had this vision of me reading his eulogy at his funeral. It came out of nowhere. Oh. Um, and I'm, I am I weren't a spiritual person. I didn't look at anything. I was very science-minded. Um, and that happened. And I remember just having this vision. And, I, and that happened. I I read his eulogy at his funeral at the same crematorium where I had the vision. Five minutes later, my phone went, you rung me. Dad's in a bad way. You need to get to the hospital. And I remember my whole body just started shaking I turned around because I knew I couldn't drive to the hospital because my feet were shaking on the pedal. So I went back to Reese, my husband. He brought me up to the hospital and I remember seeing Dad sat up in a wheelchair and I remember thinking, oh, he's not that bad. Oh, thank God for that. And then I got there and there was a look about him that was different. His face was white, Mm -hmm. with a tinge of yellow. He was cold. I remember touching him and and he was so cold and he didn't recognise us. And I remember he looked at me as though, who are you? And then he tried getting up and said, oh, I need my car keys. I need to make sure the girls are okay. Mm. I need to see my girls. And at that point, all three of us were there. And we're going, Dad, Dad, we're here. It's fine. Um, And I know what you mean. He weren't drunk. There was something, it was almost like he was, um, I think what happened, I know when your organs begin to fail and... Alcohol, toxic. like yeah. it, you're, it's that toxic, there's mm. some toxicity that's running around the blood and it affects your brain. And I think that happened. Um, and in that state, you were great at the looking after him, making sure that, because um, I know they were really understaffed and you at mm-hmm. the time were healthcare assistants, so you were helping the doctors with him.
2: Yeah. I, um, I'm glad I had the opportunity to do that, to help him. But I felt he was, um he didn't want that from me. I, I mean, I had to stay in when he was having examinations and basically hold his body so they can do exams. And that was really tough. And I think I'm more traumatised by that than a lot of the other stuff that I went through that day um, because I saw him vulnerable and he didn't like being vulnerable around us today. So that was really hard. And it's not something that I blame anybody for. It was just the situation we were in at the time. Um, But... You know Sarah you asked me the other day if I regretted um not being there when the life machine was turned off and I said no I don't regret not being there I think it was the best decision for me because I I went to see dad um on the day the support machine was turned off and it was um the nurse said to me after asking questions about the prognosis really what what could come after this and I I was more concerned about brain damage. And actually, that was the least of my worries now. I think I'd rather have that than not.
0: Is it though? Because I remember having a... And I know it sounds really
2: horrible. Mm. I remember having a
0: conversation with dad, literally months before he died, Um, when we went to see our granddad, who um, died four months before dad. And my... D- Dad, Dad said to us or said to me, um, if I ever get to a point where I'm brain damaged or people are having to care for me and you're ever faced, it's almost like he knew what was coming. Yeah, maybe. And I genuinely believe he knew something was wrong, um, just didn't tell us because he was so adamant. He said, don't you ever keep that machine on. You turn it off. I don't want to ever be in a situation where I'm I've um, lost capacity. Mm. So brain damage, I think, maybe that would have been worse.
2: I think it definitely would have been worse for him, but it was my selfish reaction that let's try and do everything we can and remain positive and optimistic that he'll get through it. And, And actually, yeah, on reflection, Dad would never have wanted that lifestyle at all. He was a very proud man, wasn't he? And he would never have wanted to feel a burden on anybody.
0: I remember... And be totally honest, it doesn't, Um, it doesn't actually, nothing, offend. it won't offend me. I remember when we were told that there was nothing else they could do and they were going to switch off the machine. Mm. And I was very pro turning yeah. it off and you was anti turning it very off. Very anti. Did you ever resent me for not trying harder to keep it on?
2: No, no, not at all. It was just something that it was like a fantasy in my head that let's let's keep it on and then hopefully within a couple of months with life support he'll get better and get stronger and um he will heal he'll recover it was probably a fantasy I had so it's not something that I resent anybody for I don't resent you I don't resent my mum uh, or all the doctors at the time they made the right decision and that was decision that decision was based on medical facts at the time as well so we had the statistics and we we knew what we were dealing with. But in my head, it was just, let's just try. Let's just do it in hope that something could happen. But in reality, he wasn't going to come back from it. He was too far gone. And, um, and I actually believe, I think he wanted to die. He didn't want to be around anymore. He didn't want to be on this planet. And he kept saying that to us as well. Um, you said that to me as well. Yeah, and I and I get I kind of have this... um belief that he always said to us when he finished his rehab treatment he said if he has to touch another or if he touches another drop of alcohol again he'll die and that's obviously what he was told and I reckon he had liver failure but didn't tell us because I could see the signs now looking back at it I think we all could you know the, the the physical symptoms that he had the jaundice the um, bloatingness, and he was always craving ice cream. He always wanted ice cream, and that's obviously a sign, isn't it? And um, you know, and he he just wanted sugar all the time. And I think um, I think he knew that he had an illness um, that was deeper than what we thought. And he knew by having that bottle, you know, I think it was seven seven days cons- consistently, wasn't he? Was drinking and he wasn't drinking the light stuff. He was drinking the, the um the vodkas and the whiskeys. I think it was three weeks. Three weeks. A liter of vodka a day. Yeah. So I he knew. He worked
0: it out. So yeah. He said to me as well, actually. He said, "Oh, I don't recognize when he got sober because he'd been drunk for fifteen years or mm. even longer." And I remember having a conversation with him where he got sober and he said, "I don't recognize this world." Yeah. I don't recognise it. This world isn't for me. Yeah. And then there was yeah. other symptoms that he had. And part of me sometimes wonders, did you do this to yourself?
2: Yeah. He, yeah,
0: And we'll never know, but there's a possibility that that could have been the case. Mm. I believe
1: it was. Oh, I am finding this really tough. No, no. I just, oh, I've got so much to say, but it's kind of all about you, but it's so fascinating listening to you two. I didn't see my dad in the lead-up to him dying, so it was during lockdown. And I think I probably used the restrictions as a bit of an excuse to put a bit of distance between it. And the last time I saw him, he looked really ill, and the things you're saying, the kind of the bloatedness and all of those things. And he'd fallen over and he'd cut his head. And I said, oh, what's happened to your head? Oh, nothing. And I just kind of chose to accept that. But certainly that period where he must have known, and we now know that he had realised he was ill, but he hadn't done anything about it. And much like it sounds your dad, you know, my dad was a really smart man and he would have known what was happening. Mm. And, he, you know, long term, and he knew the damage of an alcohol addiction and he didn't stop and I carry a lot of guilt about not being there so listening to you two about that end bit that's quite tricky for me because I wasn't there and I wish I had been and I do feel really bad that I didn't but the reality is I'd waited much like you guys I'd waited 20 odd years for my dad to die because of his addiction And it was never a case of if, it was when. Mm. And I didn't know when that day would come. But I think the thing you're saying about him being in the hospital and that belief that actually he'd just see a doctor and it would all be okay. I think we live with that because they look so ill for so long and they have all of these medical emergencies and accidents along the way and things that you just think, how have you pulled that back? I mean, it was inconceivable that my dad was 68 when he died because he had looked like he was going to die for probably the last 15 years and he'd pulled it back so many times from the edge and actually I really resent that little bit of hope, that little bit that those incidents give you because it didn't feel real when it happened then.
0: Mm. Yeah, I it. yeah, I get that. I, um, I relate to that. I remember being in the hospital and the doctor said, "Has he always been this bloated? Mm. Has he always looked yellow? Has he always wheezed?" Yeah. And I remember thinking, "Well, I I've not noticed yellow. I've not noticed bloatedness." And then you then you take a step back and you look and you think, "Oh God." Like, yeah, he's bloated. Oh my God, he's wheezing oh, he's yellow, how did we not notice this? You become complacent. I feel like I became complacent with his symptoms and I always regret not looking into it sooner and pushing it sooner. But I feel dad with us used to make us feel like we were being overdramatic. If we were to mm. say anything, he'd be like, oh, I'm not that bad, you're being dramatic. Or yeah. like, it's, I'm fine. It's summit and out. it's say summit and out Yorkshire accent. Um, and I remember when he had a full body MRI and he came back and he made such a point,
2: such a point that his tests were clear. Yeah, I remember. I don't believe him now. No. And actually you say that and on reflection, I think um, dad, when dad was sober for 16 months, the physical symptoms of an alcoholic kind of, we're still there for him, but we ignored that because his mental ability was better with us. We had a relationship with with him. So we ignored the physical stuff because we didn't want to believe, well, I personally didn't want to believe there was anything else wrong. I just thought, well, he's fine in himself now. We're able to have a relationship with him. So that's it. It's done and dusted. But little did did I know that alcoholism, it doesn't go overnight, does it? Or
1: at all. Well, and the damage it has wreaked on a body actually is irreversible. I used to go and see my dad and then after I'd seen him, I'd go onto the NHS website and I would look up end-stage cirrhosis, liver disease, liver failure. And he was checking all the boxes, but he'd do exactly the same. He'd say, oh, I've seen the doctor, my liver function is fine. I have absolutely no idea whether that was the case or not um but i chose to believe that and equally i couldn't force him
2: no exactly. like you guys
1: have said i couldn't force him to go and and get that checked out but i mean physically he was a wreck he could barely walk um he he had this contracture of all the tendons in his hands he was so bloated and didn't actually see him yellow i imagine that did happen Um, You know, his fingernails had gone completely white. Mm. There's so many things that when you then kind of look into it, you go, well, the signs were all there and I didn't make him go. And that is a COA thing, isn't it? I should have made him go. And the reality is I couldn't make him go and I couldn't stop him from doing that to himself and I couldn't control it and I couldn't cure him but I still feel like I should have done more and I think coming across from you two is that you know that's something that you've always identified with and I know Sarah has but from an outsider listening to you two Mm -hmm. and your story there was nothing more that you could have or should have done. We can't
2: be responsible for their actions um we we can only hope that they'll get better and hope they'll realise it for themselves. But you can't control people. And I've learned that recently in therapy that I've had and other support groups I've been to. As a child of an alcoholic, you can't control them and you can't control anybody else. No. So I've learnt to accept that now and that, that feeling of wanting to micromanage him or, or anybody really that I was close to, that, has has to go because you're not responsible for anybody else's actions and I wish I knew that
1: with my dad because... It's so funny because you can look at it from an outsider and, you know, that's a conversation I have with my teenage daughter all the time. You can't mm. be responsible for how other people behave or how other people react, but you can be responsible for how you deal with situations. Yeah. And, you know, and we give that message and I could sit here and give that message to you guys, but when you're absolutely in the thick of it, That's not how you feel, is it? Exactly. You feel like you want it to change. You're responsible for changing. And that actually you've got that glimmer of hope and you're going to grab it and you're going to do everything you can because you just want your parent back. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly. But
2: I, I just feel as though no matter what we did for dad, we tried to help him. We tried to do the rehab, like you say, we got him to um, rehab for 16, we got him clean for 16 months. He didn't want that. He he was doing it for us because he knew that he wouldn't have a relationship with us or anybody otherwise. And he he just did it for us. He he loved us so
0: much. Yeah. And that's one thing that I know with dad. And I remember after three months of not talking to him, mm-hmm. him and I, I'd always check in on him every day, but he rung me crying and he said to me, He went, Everything I've been through is insignificant compared to losing my girls.
2: Mm. I so, I do um, remember that.
0: he said, I'll do anything you want. And I'll, um, if you want me to go to rehab, I'll go. I'll take the medication, I'll do it all. Um, I don't want to ever lose my girls. So he did it for us, which, and I know now, after speaking to a lot of alcoholics, how difficult it is to take any medication and to get sober. so the love he must have had for us was unreal, yeah,
2: yeah. and I agree, okay. yeah fine and <laughs> um, and i do I do remember the day he went to his first session at the rehab center and Oh, he did amazing. He did. and I'm I, so proud of him. And I remember turning up and he wasn't expecting me and I walked up behind him and I just <laughs> tapped him on the shoulders and he went, oh, you're right, love? What are you doing here? I went, oh, I heard, I heard about your session today and I thought I'd come down and sit with you. And it was almost like we hadn't spoken for three months, but it was almost like we'd just, we'd, we'd not stopped talking. We just carried off um, from where we finished. And then we didn't talk about, the last argument we had um we never spoke about that we just spoke about what what was happening in the moment and we were just speaking about the future for him and what he was going to do and I was going to help him and
0: you knew why we did it
2: yeah he he knew why we did it but i had some of the best times with him when he was sober when he was um completely he he well after the time after the time we had the argument and things got quite bad um, and I said some stuff that I obviously regret now. Um, I thought that was it. I thought I'd never see him again because I was pregnant. I just found out I was pregnant with Ella, and I just, um, I I just wiped my hands with him completely. And then when he was sober and we, our relationship just got so much better. He, I was seeing him every day. I was speaking to him every day. I, I do remember one day we went up to um. Uh, Southampton or down to Southampton and we had a lovely meal with Anna and um, dad basically he paid for us to go out for lunch and it was just it was a really nice day and that was one of the last times I saw him properly before he started drinking I think it was a matter of days after he started drinking after that day but it was I was so grateful to have that one last day activity with him because um, it was a happy memory, one happy memory that we had. Yeah,
0: I think we had loads when he was sober.
2: I think we did, but that was quite a significant day for me because it was like he's changing, he's getting himself better, he's um, he's completely different. And we're, Anna and I were both saw a cha- change in him, and we all, both felt very, very um, confident about the situation. And um, yeah, he it was after that time really just went downhill. But I was so pleased I had managed to get some happy memories recent memories anyway it was one thing that i do regret is having no pictures with him i've got literally no pictures of myself and dad and that hurts because mm. i've only got the baby pictures and i've got, I've got nothing really no um uh, l- later lifetime pictures
1: but no i haven't either really and i think that's because we didn't see him you know we didn't do the nice things that you necessarily take pictures of Mm. you know we used to go and meet him for lunch in a pizza express and then he'd kind of sneak off to the loo and then he couldn't really swallow his food and it was all a bit awkward and he didn't really know my kids terribly well because we didn't see him that much and then we'd go home so I I would never necessarily have pulled out my phone at that point Mm. and I do feel really sad about that and I know you've talked about the sort of the period of sobriety and how important that is. And I think we only had one of those periods quite briefly for about three months when my dad had been quite ill and he'd been detoxed in hospital. And then he came out and he did maintain it, but we never talked about what that was like. And I think, I know Sarah sort of said, you just assumed, oh, well, that's all okay now. And I think I probably was the opposite in that he wasn't drinking at my brother's wedding and I realise now how really hard that must have been and actually part of it being so hard was that nobody had really congratulated him or even talked to him about it and I think the root cause of that is that none of us believed it would last so he'd been in hospital over the Christmas into the January and my brother got married in the February my dad wasn't drinking and I do remember saying to him that day oh, I'm really proud of you but I never followed it up and I'd never spoken to him before about it and then there'd been a period about 10 years before where he'd been on some medication that made you really ill mm. if you took alcohol and again he sort of said oh, I'm on these tablets now and even if I even if I um drank some mouthwash it would make me really sick And I just didn't trust it would work. And I didn't say, oh, how's that making you feel? And also I was a lot younger and I didn't have the knowledge or the words then. And I guess it's that glimmer of hope thing again. I didn't want to allow myself to have a glimmer of hope that it would work because I didn't trust it. So during that 16 months, I know you've you've kind of talked about it. And did you really believe that was it? Um, I think I did because I didn't have the
2: awareness about the disease. I didn't understand it and how it would come back. I do now, Um, but I, I just was holding on to, I was holding on to that. He was there and he was mentally there as well. And he was able to have a relationship with us and the grandchildren. And at the time that's all that mattered to me. But I think deep down, I knew his lifestyle wasn't good. I knew he wasn't happy. Um, and I knew it was just a matter of time really before he gets ill or um, he. Something happens. Something else happens to stress him out. Yeah, another trauma. So it was just, yeah, clock ticking time really and just waiting for the next bombshell, I guess. But. I never dropped my guard.
0: I. I actually, I say that. I remember saying to somebody, oh, he's better now. He's not an alcoholic anymore. And they laughed. And they went, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And I said, how dare you? How dare you say that? That's not the case. What dad didn't do, he didn't follow up with any psychological support. And he didn't believe that he was an alcoholic. And therefore, if he wanted to in the future, he could probably go back to it and control it mm,
2: that's he didn't what he realize
0: saying. Yeah. i can control it i can control it then granddad died mm. he took it harder than we thought he would and he relapsed and this time i remember the doctor saying to me he didn't even say it to dad he looked directly in my eyes and said if your dad ever picks up another drink again he will die He is mm. physically dependent on alcohol if he picks up another drink after having this detox it will kill him and I remember thinking, oh, it's not that bad. It can't be that bad because alcohol is so accessible. It's so freely available. If it was that bad, it wouldn't be um, glamorized like it is. Cigarettes are covered behind a screen because they're dangerous. But alcohol can't be that bad, surely. It absolutely is the case. It is that bad. Um, and I think we just didn't know, which is why now I talk like I do. Um, I talk and I know it's um and I know you and Anna have been really supportive of me talking like I do and being as open as I do. And I do that because I just think we we weren't open when he was alive. I almost feel like this is me rebelling now by talking yeah. so openly. um how does it make you feel when I talk about it
2: like I do? I'm proud I think dad dad would be proud. Dad was a very private man, but he—if it changes the world, if it changes people's views on it, and it helps other people get through it, then he—he he would be more than happy to. Because you—you
0: struggled talking about it, haven't you?
2: I've really struggled talking about it. Really have. Um, not that—not because I'm ashamed. It's not that at all. It's—I think I've just struggled to come to terms with it. I think it hit me a lot harder than I've let on to people. I've struggled with other things as well, with my mental health. And I think that's, I've kind of, so for example, when I go to, I go to therapy to help with my mental health. And it's, it's amazing. It's really helped. But when, when I'm there, she says to me, the therapist, she's, she goes, do you want to talk about your childhood trauma? And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to talk about that just yet. I want to talk about the acute problems right now, the, the issues that I'm dealing with right now. And then she'll go, okay, when when you're ready, we we should really talk about that because that's probably stemmed from mm. your childhood, what you're dealing with now. And um, and I just keep I just keep shutting it down. I don't let it come out, and it obviously has a knock on effect with a lot of stuff because it's. I know what I'm trying to say, but I've you're just discover- you're you're on a journey at the moment. You're discovering
0: yeah, who I am. You're discovering who you are, and you're discovering that being a child of an alcoholic is a thing. Yeah, and I think only recently, since you went to that Al Anon meeting, that you have um, openly said, "Actually, I'm a child of an alcoholic," mm. and you've started talking about it more. You've been more open. Um, you're starting to explore the side effects, I yeah, suppose.
2: Yeah, of the really, learned behaviours as yeah, a child of an, an alcoholic, away. yeah. And and one of those is the control that we were talking about earlier. I like to control things. I like to micromanage and it, it will frustrate me if I'm not in control of something. Um, not necessarily myself because... I can't control my own feelings sometimes. I don't regulate them as well as I should, but I like to control other things that I can't
1: control. Mm. Um, I find some of the language around it really difficult. So even then, when you said, my therapist says we need to talk about my childhood trauma. Yeah. Actually, to me, it feels disingenuous to describe my childhood as traumatic. It was, Mm. and I can kind of see that, but... I feel like that's a really harsh term to put on what I experienced in that, you know, I've got my mum and my brother and I've got a really lovely family and I was fortunate in that my dad's addiction to alcohol wasn't traumatic. And I think it's the word trauma. You know, I didn't have the experiences that I know lots of COAs who we know Mm. have had. So it feels like I'm doing them a disservice to describe me as having trauma. But also it would make other people feel bad if I said I had a traumatic childhood because that's not how I would describe it. And I think that's really tricky because for a long time I felt, well, I've really got nothing to moan about. I've, You know, yes, my dad drank too much, but this has happened and this has been good. And I'm generally quite a positive person. So I think... Maybe one of the reasons I didn't engage with things before now is because I didn't feel authorised to do so. I didn't feel that my situation was as bad. It's like a Top Trumps game. It's (laughs) like, oh, okay, well, I haven't got the Top Trumps card in that or I haven't done this. But then I was watching a TV programme the other day with my husband and it was about murder. I like that sort (laughs) of (laughs) thing. But they showed some footage of where this incident had happened and the bed was really unmade and there were bottles and there was some blood and things like that. And actually, I could not cope with it at all because it took me to a really bad place around my dad dying and that scene was really triggering for me and I had a really distressing response to it. So clearly I have had trauma and I carry trauma and I am traumatised by certain things that have happened. But even saying that I still go, well, you can't really call it trauma because it wasn't as bad as, wasn't as bad as that person or that person. So I think we've all got work to do.
0: That's your frame of reference. That's a, um, my my opinion, I, I totally appreciate and respect where you're coming from. Um, and we used to be the same. I always used to say to dad, oh, dad, come on, snap out of it. Other people have it worse than you do. Mm. Worst thing to say. Yeah. Because what it did is it invalidated what my dad was going through. We almost invalidate our own trauma. Yeah. Because we always, and it's that, I don't know if it's that um, culture thing that we do. or oh, there's always somebody worse off. But how far do you take that? Because if you really think about it, there will always be somebody worse off, no matter what way you look at it. And I really hate it. One of my biggest pet peeves is when somebody will say, what have you got to be stressed about? What have you got to be anxious about? You've got this. You've got a roof over. Somebody said it to me recently. You don't have anxiety. You, You can talk on stage and you've got a lovely family and you've got this and you've got that. And I thought doesn't exempt me from exactly. having anxiety yeah. just like somebody from an affluent area or somebody with money and who doesn't have the standard life stresses that somebody would say warrants to be stressed about you know what i mean is yeah. that like coming out right like it doesn't exempt you from being affected if it affects you emotionally if it makes you anxious if it makes you depressed if it makes you stressed then it is valid it's the trauma and I think no matter where you come from, no matter what background you have, no matter what you've got, what you own, who you're friends with, who's around you, you are not exempt from being stressed. Um, so I think no matter what we go through, it's valid. And I used to say stuff like that, Amy. I used to be like, well, it's not that bad for us. At least we've got this, at least that. It's the worst thing. Now, now I think... No, it affected me. It mm. traumatised me. I have a right to be affected by it and to process it because all the time we're not processing our traumas, we store it somewhere and it will come out at a later date.
2: You'll be triggered by something yeah, else. Our stress bucket yeah. will
0: just overflow and things will mount. Like, what, what we've probably done is our stress container is filled with all these traumas, all these stresses, and then where we don't talk about it because we think well actually other people have it worse than we do so i don't really have a right to say anything that bucket just fills and fills and fills and then one day somebody will do something like leave the washing in the washing machine for too long and you'll snap mm-hmm. and it'll be something so tiny and you'll think oh where did that come from but it's actually not that that you're stressed out about it's something that's much deeper that we've not dealt with because we have been conditioned to believe Get up, carry on, crack on with it. Don't talk. Don't don't be open. Um, and I think that's
2: it. Just I'm I'm very passionate about it. <laughs> can you tell?
1: <laughs> I can. And that's good. Passionate is good. <laughs> so, Vicky, how do you feel about our chat? How do you feel about the stuff Sarah does?
2: I oh, like I said before, I feel very proud to say I was doing this. Um, I just, I guess I just want to bring my, my feelings to life. I want to make them, even though they're real in my head and they are real, they happened. What I went through was genuine. I, Like I said, I've never owned it before. And now's the time to really own what I'm going through and deal with it and talk openly and freely about it without feeling as though I'm, um, like, as though my feelings are invalidated. It's like you say, there's always some people worse off and that is that is reality. But we had, it was traumatic. We had a hard life and even in, you know, in our adult life, we had our own issues, our own responsibilities, children, um, work, you know, bills to pay there was so much more other stuff to worry about at this stage and then we had the additional stress of worrying about our father and looking after him it was almost like looking after another child sometimes wasn't it so that what I'm trying to say is that that's all I'm reliving that to make a positive change to me now to to make me feel like my feelings are validated how I'm feeling and um I'm just trying to own it. I'm trying to own my my mental health and not feel embarrassed or ashamed of it. No, I'm really proud of you for that. Oh, thanks. It's not in a patronising <laughs> way. No, meaning,
0: I know. Like, Thank you. I do feel like I know it's something that we've not really spoken about since Dad died. And I think that obviously now you're ready. And I think it's just really, it's, I'm excited for you because I can see I know when you get to that point and you freely talk about it mm. and you start dealing with these situations, I know what comes and I know how much of an improvement it is on your own mental health. So I do feel excited for you. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think you're right. I think our childhood and our adult life has been traumatic mm. with dad. Um, love him very much. Loved him Um he was the best he was, and it's just it if we can turn a negative situation into something positive yeah. and learn something from it how do you feel that's what I wanted to ask you how do you feel now you've been speaking to more children of alcoholics and you suddenly realize that oh god I weren't alone like other people feel this, or other people went through that. How does that make you feel?
2: Um, so how does it make me feel well i I don't feel so alone anymore. I don't feel like I'm uh, my feelings are prisoned in my body if that makes sense I don't I can release them and and speak openly about it um especially when talking to other um children of alcoholics and hearing their side I can really relate to them and uh, you know recently I went to a support group where it was like that and I could I could really relate to how they were feeling and it just felt like so it was um what's what's the word I'm looking for it was it was very empowering empowering to take that away and think I'm not alone I know that I'm not alone because I had Anna and Sarah going through the same thing and but when you you hear it from an outsider's point of view as well, that other people in the world are
1: going through it, you don't feel so alone. Oh, I totally agree. You get a room full of COAs. Yeah. It's the most powerful thing. Yeah. And it's actually it's the things that you don't have to say to each other which are just as important as the things that you do say to each other and the the similarities that you don't have to talk about. But also the validation, I know the first time Sarah and I met, we were like, oh, do you do this? And did they do that? And actually, it just makes your situation feel a little bit more validated,
2: validated bit,
1: yeah. and also that you weren't on your own. Mm. And the things you talk about, you know, if you said to a friend who hadn't lived through it, oh, did your dad used to do X, Y and Z? They I mean, just look at you like you're insane. Yeah. But to speak to people who understand and that's where kind of the work of Nakura and things is so important because it makes people feel seen, it gives people a place to be heard and it makes them feel less alone and um, you guys have been awesome, Vicky, you've done brilliantly. I mean, I don't know what your future plans are but I do a podcast and uh, I've got some dead wood. Is that in Parliament? I have been to Parliament. I don't really like to talk about it. <laughs> oh, you uh, should. <laughs> but I do a podcast and I've got this partner and I'm thinking of cutting her out, so I don't know if you're free. <laughs> you're just upgrading me to
0: a younger model, aren't you? 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, 2.0. <laughs> You'll get used to this. This is the clown child coming out in here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you can't see
0: it. <laughs> Turns everything into a joke. You got to humour it though. Very sometimes, sarcastic, not you? you? Very sarcastic, aren't you? Sarcastic. Do you know what she said to me when we went to Parliament? Mm-hmm. Chuck that in there. We were sat. <laughs> we were sat in London watching the world go by, eating a sandwich at a local pret. And she went to me. Oh, Dad died. When did he die? I, oh, exactly one week before he turned sixty. She looked at me and we had sober Dave at the end and um, he looked up all empathetically, as as a normal person would. And Amy looked at me, she put her sandwich down and she went, get a refund on his present. Yeah, but that's the sort of thing dad would have said as well. (laughs) And Dave went, you can't say that. And then I looked and I went, it's Amy. And then it went really quiet and then Dave went, Did you? (laughs) 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 She's got a good point, though. (laughs) Oh, But um, honestly, Vix, thank you.
2: That's okay. Thank you for having me.
0: And I know we could probably talk, like, all day about stuff Mm. in our childhood. And I know that's something you've not really delved into yet, which is why we're just kind of touching towards the end of his life. Um, But... It's really good to know your perspective and to look at it through or to hear about it through your eyes and Mm, for what you went through. Because I know what it was like for me, but to hear it from your perspective, I didn't realise Dad shouted at you about the ambulance. Mm. I didn't realise that. I've carried that guilt with me for so long, thinking I should have done that, I should have done that. Why did he shout at me? Knowing that he shouted at you as well has just reiterated to me that he definitely didn't want that. makes me feel better. Okay. So I think these conversations with siblings, and I know it's hard because I know there's a lot of siblings out there that their frame of reference, their perspective is so different. Some COAs and loved ones want to talk about it openly, um, but their family just aren't ready or they don't want to talk about it, which can make it really difficult because... You want to talk about your experience with somebody else who was there. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, And then some other COAs haven't come to terms with it or they might not identify as a child of an alcoholic. They might think that it weren't that bad. So there's all these discrepancies. So I think talking to other family members that lived through it and having open conversations about what it was like for them and how they dealt with it, can be really healing I found this really healing so thank you we'll get you on again when you've um when you're when you've gotten a bit more when you're more used to talking about it and Mm. when you could delve a little bit deeper into it but I think it's really important
2: I think it's good recovery to do as well it's it's a healing process like you say but it's also really good to it helps own the the traumas that you've gone through it helps just bringing it to life and Talking about it openly and it just it can help somebody, like you say, just get through that stage in their life to be able to talk more openly about it and not feel so
1: prisoned, if that's the right word no, to totally. use in their body. I did a talk the other week at a prison and I took my uncle with me. And actually it was a really good opportunity to just sort of have a bit of a chat. You know that thing where you're driving and you're not looking at each other and you just mm. kind of have a chat, and he said, I just don't think any of us realised the impact it had had on you and I said but I don't think I realised the impact it had, I don't want you to feel bad, I don't this is not me trying to make you feel guilty the stuff I do now is not about not feeling looked after when I was younger or any of those things I didn't realise the impact it had had on me I'm only just understanding the impact it had on me, so Nobody could have done anything differently. And if you'd have asked me when I was in it, if I was okay, I would have said, yeah, I'm fine. Head down, made a sarcastic comment, just kind of get through it, Mm. you know, like you guys had to. And it's really important afterwards to take that time and to to really understand it. If that's what you want to do. Absolutely. Which is what you're doing now, Mm. which is incredible. Oh, girls, it's been a pleasure. And you haven't had any sibling squabbles. I'm a bit worried about the childhood episode you're now planning. It'd be like, and then you stole my <laughs> bubby, and that time you took my top and kissed my boyfriend. <laughs>
0: actually, if we're going to talk about it all the time, she broke my hair straighteners. So many pairs of hair straighteners.
2: All I had I to break. do was
0: touch them, they and they I break. break the straighteners. <laughs> I'm actually waiting to wrap this up with a awkward sarcastic joke from amy because i feel like we've got a whole episode with no sarcasm
1: um vicky i think you're prettier than (laughs) your sister um so does reese that's my husband (laughs) that's sarah's husband um, I just think you and I could be really good friends So, you know, DM, like DM me, much. babes I've got 167 <laughs> followers You'll get through straight off I'll come to Parliament with you next I'll time I'll do, yeah, we'll have lunch <laughs> She's really needy, by the way Really? <laughs> oh, and can I just ask, is Sarah really overdramatic in real life?
2: Oh, all the time <laughs> All the time <laughs> There's no control in her anymore She's too far gone <laughs> And that's a wrap <laughs> My trap
1: been listening to sarah and amy the children of alcoholics podcast if any of the things we've been talking about resonates with you and you want further help please contact NACOA at www.nacoa.org.uk. there you'll find a wealth of information support and advice and remember you are not alone